Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. I, of course, am your host, Bob, and I'm accompanied today by... Hey, it's Brennan. Hey, it's Chris. Nick. And Mike. Obviously, being on the SD team, uh, actually the entire team, uh, for 25 years of ETM. And today we're going to be going over The Player's Guide to the Low Clans. I know it's incredibly popular. It's uh, another book in the series out of the Dark Ages half uh, for Vampire. And uh, before we get into that, I want to give a few shout-outs to our new patrons. I want to thank uh, Dragon Girl Josie for coming back, um, Alex for joining up, Paul Henderson, and Kid One. Welcome, you guys. Thank you so much. Um, it's more than appreciated, and we're glad you uh, find us at least interesting to come back to. Um, but I want you guys to kind of keep an open mind as we all go through it. Instead of it being just uh, me and one other person, we're trying to get a diverse group of people to look at these books from a different angle. Uh, so to give you better information, better discussion points, and more than just old Bob up here talking to you. And we're going to start off right here where uh, Brent's around, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, give us kind of uh, your thoughts to start off on uh, how this intro story is. What is the intro story about? So the intro story is about... Uh... It's a couple of nights from the perspective of a, a servant uh, and chilled to a, uh, a Tremere that is trying to, well, he's trying to climb that ladder. He's trying to be recognized as important. And it goes through the, the grueling aspect of having to serve him, but also gives insight into um, how a low clan member uh, active in the court, um, how they act, how they, um, how they plan, uh, how they climb that ladder up. <clears throat> Not scarce. Anybody had any thoughts about this intro story? I liked it. Um, there's a there's a couple aspects to it that that kind of struck me. Like, as a low clan in general, maybe not so much as a Tremere story. I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty spot on. It, it captures a couple ideas, and that's uh, what it takes to be considered a part of Clan Tremere. Just when they go over like what he the ritual he had to perform him and the other guy to even earn the embrace and how the other guy basically choked on his blood and then was repurposed by clan Tremere <laughs> as the other one was embraced uh i thought that was i thought that was awesome it also gives you that insight mentality into clan Tremere where they think they're king shit while everyone else doesn't and that's highlighted at the very end of the story uh which i thought was awesome I think it's in, it's important to note here that the prelude they put down, it shows that the low clans, uh, their perspective of how a servant, this case being Gervais Bonnie Tremere himself, um, into what treachery the low clans are capable of performing the name of advancement and recognition, which is exactly, I think, what you're talking about, Nick. And uh, to that end, I think the intro, does, they deliver on exactly what they said they had uh, for that. However, I'm going to run through a list of themes here that we'll, even, we'll do the whole book over them. Um, but they said that's in here. This was in the intro story. They talk about a theme of blood, meaning that feeding is more complex when there's not, you know, when you're not rich enough to have established herds, easy feeding, access to blood. Do you feel that that's that's something you saw in here? Yeah, right. uh, definitely uh, with the Nosferatu side of things. The deliberating. Well, you're talking about the cave incident. <laughs> well, among other things. <laughs> All right. All right. Fair enough. Um, what about hope? So throwing off the idea of being lesser, 
that was ingrained into them, right? And referring to the what you, you should be feeling as a low claim, right? It says redemption through God's a thing, ambition to find and use positions that typically uh, they can't necessarily have, but they can use their current low claim position to hopefully rise higher than they were. Yeah, that definitely is. Um, There's some things uh, we might go into more about later, but there's a that also can take a, a couple of different unexpected approaches, right? It's not just uh, climbing up through uh, through making yourself valuable. Sometimes it's uh, there are ways they can climb that ladder by impersonating or pretending to be things they're not, right? So it's kind of like a, a devious hope, but uh, I definitely saw that aspect in the book. One aspect that I like to chime in on regarding that hope, though, is hope should be inherent to any vampire in general, whether you're high or low clan, um, specifically because there is that moment of redemption that you're playing towards. Now, if we're talking about the political structure as well in terms of a, a vampire's personal uh, you know, ambitions, um, looking at it from a low clan perspective only further extrapolates just how much more of a spotlight being put on you um, to achieve that greatness, right? Because you're that much more in... I hate to put it in the way of dregs, but by comparison to the high clans, um, it only gives you that much more of a purpose to make your reward that much more enriching um, and bring your game to that level. All right. And there's one theme here that I have down is the war, right? And this refers to the War of Princes, which basically, uh, to catch everybody up, War of Princes is a battle of ancient vampires, mostly high clans, nailing down domain and subverting vassals, in particular their own. Uh, to obviously have more land and lock down what they want to do uh, in this whole jihad thing, really Gehenna. And what we're referring to is that before, right? You had the long night and, you know, the incidents were like basically taking you through the dark, dark, right? And that's what I typically refer to uh, as before the high courts and low courts were even developed, kind of what that's about. And the fall of Constantinople is what pretty much kicks off the War of Princes, right? Because once a, it's revealed that a monarch can die, well, everyone else is scrambling to get that piece of the pie. And I'm not certain the intro does that, but they only had so much, right? Um, but maybe I'm wrong. What do you guys think? All right. So apparently, the answer again. I'll have to take that accordingly. And we'll, and we'll move on as you stare at me. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Um, so then the two moods of this book are horror and horror and madness. And uh, what we have to understand about that is horror, as they define it, is personal horror and in pertaining to the player themselves, right? It's the player as the horror, the monster, that what would life be like as a vampiric leper or a servant, or an outcast as a vampire living amongst the mortals that are pretty much doing the same. You don't get the ability to stand in a high lofty tower or behind a castle and what have you, and you're you're in the you're in the muck with them. And so hunger is more acute. You're you're more amped to be involved, more apt, excuse me, to be involved in whatever they have going on, whether it's catching thieves or a war in the night or whatever can can happen can happen to you. And it's it's a very different story than if you're a part of a court or one of the high clans in that, in that aspect. Now, madness is not just loss of the mind, it's that loss of the mind with the loss of morality. They're referring, they're referring to how hard it is to maintain your humanity when you're not part of the high clans. Now, why that is, we talked about the high clans and that there's a pension and you get permission to embrace, you bring them over and you embrace them, but then you stay with your sire for quite a long time. And your sire's almost pouring a different philosophy into your brain of how a vampire is, and you're latching onto it because it's all you know. 
and your own morality is almost non-consequential as you have to learn what it is to be what you are now. And that's what we're talking about is that road transition. Now, if you're a low clan, there's an equal amount of chance you're embraced some random in the field, um, lover dying, or hey, you name it, any of the crazy things that could happen back in those days with without money, right? Without the protection of an established area, and you're just in it. And if you were embraced in those circumstances, what is it like for you? And maybe you kept your morality, right? And what does it mean when you have the thief? It's, it's got to be that much harder. Have to kill, etc. And madness is a theme. It's a, or excuse me, a mood that can that can hit you. Now, as we go through this, there's uh, five chapters, right? And I'm going to be upfront about some of these. Now, the first chapter is called Lowest of the Damned. Goes into the history of the Low Clans, gives a player toolkit to aid in your creation, and then they offer a section that will twist and pervert human customs as tactics to make it into medieval. Right, and what they refer to there is that a common job for a normal mortal would be different in the hands of a vampire of a particular clan. In chapter two, playing the low clans, it's about the conceptualization of what a low clan is and the mindset of the clan they're from, how to create something in those clans, and how to develop low clan characters, you know, in a progression format. Chapter three is brothers of a different blood, or what I like to call it, bloodline offshoots and how to play them. Right? Mm-hmm. They, they give a little excerpt, talk about the clans, but they do go over Anda, Libon, Gargoyles, Leonin, Televeic, Tremere, and I, if I pronounce this right, Noid, Noid, the Noid of Clan Gangrel, whatever it is. <laughs> um, but chapter three, we're fundamentally, we're just letting you know it's there. It's not really the focus of this book, um, even by how they have it. It's like they offer to let you know they exist. They even got a few alternate powers for the Gargoyles in the book. But ultimately, it's about the actual low clans, not their bloodlines, is the focus of the book. So for that, we're just going to let you know it's in the book. Feel free to check that out. In chapter four, though, it's Blessings of the Unclean Blood. This goes over discipline techniques, which we are common parlance as combo disciplines, thaumaturgic rituals, asimite sorcery details, and advanced elder discipline. We will stop by that chapter to talk about one particular aspect. Um, however, mostly a lot of that's crunch. Don't like to bore you guys with that on the mic, except for key points, and we'll get to those. Chapter 5, though, rounds up with those who hunt the night. This is where they get into notable NPCs from those old clans, such as Fatima Al-Fakati. Um, she's in there. Um, five template characters, you know, give you examples of uh, low clans, some interesting templates, and uh, several old clan sects that they throw in. Again, don't know how much time we're going to have for those, but they are in the book. Um, they're not magnificent 30-page out things. They're just sort of, here's an idea. And stuff to look at. But for the big stuff that's in this book, we're going to spend some time with that. Um, I'm going to roll into the uh, the first part of it, just to get it started. And let these jackals have a chance to, to question me. And, <laughs> and what, what we go over it. Because, of course, we're talking about the Asimites, right? Um, for those of you who've listened to me for a while, you know the Asimites are not my favorite clan. But they're easily my number two. And a lot that goes on. And this book does a, a shortened, a brief version of the revised Asimite book. However, I had some, some key points in here. Now, you've heard us talk about the Asimite Revised and, of course, the first Asimite clan book. And you know, we invite you to listen to those podcasts to get the bigger in depth. I'm more or less going to explain some of the things they have in here that I found interesting. Right? One is, off the bat, they're trying to establish this, uh, this bit of wordplay where they say that the word Asam is Hakim heard by European ears. I, w- I was blown away. I was blown away. I'll be honest. I, I tried looking enough to see it. I couldn't find uh, anything that let, would do a pronunciation of the Q 
for Hakim, it was like H-A-Q-I-M. But I did find plenty on H-A-K-I-M. And, you know, Hakim is Hakim. But I didn't know if it was that different. However, I'm almost willing to bet money. It doesn't sound like a psalm. <laughs> it does not. Yeah, I, I can't think of any phonics that would fit that. Uh, so maybe <laughs> for an H at the beginning of it? And even then, that's like only half there. So what it did for me was go, okay, we're trying real hard to make this, you know, okay, we get it. Europeans are ignorant to the Middle Eastern ways. Okay, got it. But Google kind of destroys that, but we'll leave that alone. <laughs> right? Uh, they talk about the misconceptions of them, too. Um, the fact that they're seen as these blood-drinking amaranth-having killer assassins in the night. Mmm, they are. I don't know. That's a mis... I, I wouldn't say it's a misprint. Um, they're called the Judges. Um, what they do is look at other clans, and if you're a naughty little vampire having a blood cult, abusing mortals, that's like Hakim's number one trigger point. You abuse... You can abuse all the canines you like. The moment you slap that servant girl, you're Saracen. It's a done deal. It's like, you have been chosen, right? Fizzy lifting <laughs> drinks. You stole them. Wonka wants them back. And that's how it goes, right? Um, but Asimites are interesting, right? In here, they have a very, very similar to the Salubri, right? They talk about scholar origins and, and whatnot. And they get into, well, scholars and warriors. And, and, and then, like, now with sorcery, right? This is where they kind of expand upon it. They tell you that, well, to know them is to know that Hakim was a special guy. He was very intelligent. And he walked around and saw things and things he saw he was interested in. But he was a warlord. We'll mention that as an aside. Because that's how they treat it. Hakim liked to fight, but he was already good at that. So he went out to experience the world. And he wanted to know, why did the best predators hunt at night? Alright, I, I kind of figured that was its own explanation. But um, he needed to know. And that's, you know, things like that. He was like a scientist in the time before we even had that term. And he liked observing when he liked fighting. And so basically they used it as like, that's why he came back with these scholars. Right? Comes back with some people who like to learn some stuff. And then he goes out and comes back with some more. Well, let me not get ahead. He leaves, comes back with some scholars. And uh, basically he looks at, uh, you know, Kane and everybody. And he's like, well, hey, everybody, I brought back some smart people. Like, what do they do? Well, they're going to tell us why stuff is. All right, cool. No one cared. Right? Like, all right, do your thing. And then he brings back these judges. And they're like, Hey, Hakeem, what's that about? Hakeem's like, well, we need to be protected. Right? You guys asked me to do a job, and that's important, so I'm here to do a job and do it for you. All right, cool. And then he comes back with sorcerers like, Hakeem, what's up? Magic's cool. <laughs> right? This is why I like magic, don't you? And what I'm riffing on is the fact that they give you little info as to why that stuff is. Like, they kind of give you half explanations as to why he came back with this stuff. And... It definitely makes it feel more like a, a salubri approach, right? The salubri clan more or less had that. And not to get into it, because they're not in this book at all. But if you go read the salubri and then read the Asimite revised book, it's almost like they were brothers of the same clan, Hakim and Salat, in a lot of ways. And hmm. even in their divisions, right? It brings to mind. There's another clan in there that is very similar as well to the region that this highlights, actually, without them even knowing it. I got kind of triggered when I read about how the Asimites were cursed, right? How the warriors got cursed. They more or less make a statement where it's like, yeah, one night the Asimites get tricked by these devil worshippers and they make them believe that they can be beat. And so they do a string of raids and let the warriors win, the warriors win, the warriors win. And then they're like, aha, got you. Now your whole bloodline's cursed. <laughs> right? And I was like, what, what, what is that about? 
Like you go read the revised ASMI clan book, which which by the way, that, that came out in two thousand. This book came out Players Got a Low Clans came out in two thousand three. Mm. So they had the information. Just it was like we're not gonna make that an important focus. Okay, I think you should have. Uh, because when you read their telling of it, even if you watered down and said it was very aggrandized, they talk about how the Bali and the Asimites were 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 fang to fang, right? How the Bali laid siege to the second city, how they came out of nowhere, how Solid had asked Hakim to set up and guard the city, gave the reason as to why he brought the judges in, gave reason mm-hmm. why he went and found sorcerers to counter this infernalism, gave reasons as to why they had to research and study to fairly judge law, right? Did all of this. And this and this method in the revised Asimite clan, what they point out, where the Asimites pretty much are like a version of Hammurabi's code, right? Hammurabi being awesome, you should know that history, 1754 BC, he's putting up these steelies all around, right? It's the written law that everyone will know wherever his empire is, and that's how it is. And you can feel a lot of that went into the flow of what the Asimite clan is, right? And what they had going on. Now, that's something that's very important because when you think of it in that method and you think about them shortchanging it a bit and how that's not in this book, a lot of that, it just basically makes the, if, if it's the only book you had, you feel kind of the Asimites are these, all right, you're a scholar, uh, a judge who's really a warrior and a sorcerer. You, you attend parties, like to do stuff with balloons and you're a clown. Like what's sorcery about? And it doesn't <laughs> do anything to it. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's an interesting thing to do. I'm assuming it's space is the issue, right? But they do give a rendition of how Hakim finds Alamut, right? In the Asimite Revised book, they'll tell you that it was a harrowing journey and this great thing happens. Well, in this book, it actually defines that great thing, which I found interesting. So, like, there was a mix, right? It was like you had to read both to get the full picture. Uh, But in here, it's like he, well, like you expect. He gets mad at the depredations in the second city, even in its ruination, takes his people and we're out. And he just goes walking and people start dying and they're like, hey, Hakeem, um, we're mortal. We can't walk for 12 years straight. Can you give us a break? And he was like, look, the heavens, the sky, they'll let us know when we're there. That's not an answer. But also he's a war blood god and we just kind of keep following him. And <laughs> you don't got a choice. And only the devout can truly follow, right? One of those things. Hey, you know how it is. Back in the old days, they love to wander deserts. that's what you got to do and i and and i'm about that nick i got that too a lot of biblical borrowing right a lot of strong stories of going out into remote places and having epiphanies and everything like that are sort of what they're painting this picture of however i'm winding this down there's some key things that i think we should we should know right one of them being if Hakim had a problem with the decadence and pettiness of Canaanites that was shown in the second city, which is why he left, when he built this clan and observed that they had the same behaviors, why did he just leave? Right? It's weird. Like, when you were asked to do something and you were there and you saw that, okay, it was all the other clans being evil. If I had just my own place, then I know my blood wouldn't do it. But when you saw your own blood get petty, why didn't you think it was the human spirit? For as wise and... And as interesting as he is and allegedly, oh, not just wise, but powerful, why wouldn't that have been an element to stick around and handle? It's it's baffling, right? He didn't just leave, though. He left and he goes to Mithras. Mithras, who is another (laughs) war god of a larger cult, right? And to discuss what, right? A story to be a fly on the wall for sure. But why bring this up 
is because he's a war god. That's my point. And that's what I think has been overlooked grandly, right? If you look at Urshulgi, and I'm just going to point this out. Everybody want me to go a little deep? I'll go a little deep here. If you look at Urshulgi, you read his story and his connection into what he is in the modern. He gives you deep insight as to what it was like in the past, right? Azim Urbal is another one, and that's out of a seraph out of the Black Hand. And he as well, same thing, deep knowledge as to what it was like back then. It wasn't about no little likable nerdy scholar walking around deciding to turn in his sword for a, for a plow and talk to some people about how cool it would be to live forever in a city, right? What I'm telling you is that I still think this book is saying there is no information known about the, uh, the Asimites that you can get behind as a European perspective. And this book even tells you this whole entire book is written from Europe's perspective, right? And as far as they're considering England, they're not considering the Middle East and on, right? So to those opinions and to that stuff going on, I sat there and said to myself, okay, let me let me let, let me let off a little bit. As much as I love Asimites, that's actually brilliant because they're making you, the player, find the in-between cracks between various books, these stories included, to go somewhere in here is a truth. Now, what could that be? And this one states that it's pro-Islam is what's going on right now, right? And that's kind of hitting the clan, but that is by no means the entire clan. And the sorcerers remain silent about it, which makes it even more powerful. Now, I just used it as a little dip, but ultimately this holds true to the all the info that you hear about the Asimites and a quick rendition of it, and for you to get a character to jump in and play a low clan. Um, anybody got any thoughts at all? Do you do you think it's possible that Hakeem was just suffering from despair when he threw up his hands, saw his clan doing some of the same stuff other clans did, and said, I'm I'm gonna dip now and go talk to Mithras before I disappear for a second? What's the just Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, was he just frustrated? Was he was he tired of being think, immortal and so powerful and yet you know? I think he was absolutely upset. They give insight into the fact that at the, around, around the time of Sparta, right? Um, there were some Asimites who supported things in Sparta and some who didn't. And they kind of drug this pettiness to Hakim. Now, Hakim gave strict orders that were out of the jihad. You're, you're not a part of Gehenna. Just stay out of it, right? You let them do what they're going to do. We're here to judge them. We're not here to be a part and do their work. But by them kind of siding with one way or another that war, that brought him to the front. That's where his frustration came from. That despite what he had said, despite what he had ordered, they're still disobeying him. And he can't fault them, but he can fault it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just to tally on to that as well, it also makes you wonder, and this is one of the things that perhaps, especially from the, the perspective of how, you know, these, these antediluvians are written, founders of clans, etc. Um, I, I think from a player perspective as well, many players who end up reading this usually idolize that that founder as being at the same level as the remainder of the clan being that stereotype um being that one thing that just is constant throughout but i think more so with hakeem especially because of the way that he's written and the way that the clan kind of follows him what makes you think that it just isn't hakeem's hubris that you might have the best intentions in mind but you're too blind to see that you can't control everything or you just can't make your dream come true the way that you personally want it to Right? I think, does that strike a chord there as well? It does. I, I think what they're what that points out is the fact that if you're you're remember, I don't see Hakeem as this scholar in the slightest. 
right? Um, and where do I get this from? Um, Urshel Gee was like embraced in a time when the skies rained with blood, right? It's like a literal explanation of what it was like where he comes from. Urshel Gee is also someone that as a mortal bested an Asimite, right? He was a mage to be sure, but he had complete control of blood before he was made a vampire. That was his namesake and had suffered something horribly at a demon's hands. If you look at Al Shrad, he too has demons bound to him directly and they know how to battle them openly. I'm trying to think of how a scholar would have even approached that and thought that being a sane rationale, right? And the answer is simply didn't. But a war god would. A bloody war god. If you look back far enough and you look at the Sumerians and, and their gods and goddesses, there was like a clear light and dark, right? Like they had these ideas already. And when you dig that much and just leave it alone, you kind of get where they didn't want to make it all about the past. Because obviously, you know, Vampire the Masquerade was pitched for the present. But the idea here is that a blood god would use everything in his disposal, wouldn't have so much as walked up to Urshulgi and said, hey, you mind helping us out? As it was a command, right? You will come with me or the result is death. Look at what you can do. Look at what you have going on. I think it was a very more, much dramatic entrance than ever. And because of that, he had that control and he had absolute loyalty there. However, when Islam comes in, there can be no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet, right? This throws a kink in that whole blood cult that he had built for himself, Hakim did. And when that chink in the armor um, appears, you got to imagine that there are a lot of warriors going, my faith is my soul, and my life is irrelevant, and I will fall on the side of God before I ever betray, my, betray God for any, any other blood god or otherwise. And this is, this is the rift of the clan. And I think this starts to take over. When that happened, I think Hakim didn't leave out of pure pettiness and what went on. He's seen that. He can expect that. How could you not? Right? But the fact is, he left because he's a god who's losing followers. Right? His method isn't working now. And why isn't it working? And when he leaves, he goes to another blood god who built a cult that still fears him. Why is that? Right? In particular, seeing as the Asimites are better killers. So what's going on there? And I think that it was more of that conversation. He went to not a peer because there's no way Mithras is an equal, but he went to him to talk to him about someone who was eye to eye as a cult leader. Well, that's actually, uh, that is interesting. There is a, there's heavy cult ideology in that, even so much as, uh, as propping Hakim up as a, as a father figure. I think there's a reason they're called children of Hakim. I'd agree. And that's another one of the things that's hard to explain uh, with that. You'd have to, it's, it's perceptions, right? My perception is that this clan never had a full open explanation of what it could have been and what it is. And there was a lot of blowback because hard culture to look up at the time it came out, um, at least its first rendition. A lot of people saw him as just cane bros, right? Why, why, where's the depth? When they added the depth, it was already too late. More popular clans went out, and that's what they focused on. Now, let me. <laughs> uh, I, I prefer having my hindsight be twenty twenty, right? But do you do you believe that when the clan was originally written, they weren't just Cambros? Because I have not read the entire first edition clan book, but I can definitely see. How like the image of the the Prince of Persia from the video game, or um, Altair from Assassin's Creed, 
how somebody might have that archetype in their mind and say, oh, look, I can play that as a vampire. Let's uh, let's throw that clan into the game and leave it there. And then later they talk to somebody from the region and recognize stereotypes. And so they they give the clan depth after the fact to pay some respect. What I think you're right. I think what the challenge here is that there are many authors who get get a hold of this material and they get to write in their piece of it. And that's that's going to have to sit as that answer because we can't guess what they thought of. Um, what I could tell you, though, is that what is important is that when you research Cain and Abel, just, just do that. Look up Cain and Abel and look at the years and the times. But then challenge yourself and don't look at the Christian view or the Jewish view and look over the area they're talking about. And they have deep history. Look up Proto-City and get an idea of what it was 10,000 BC that they're trying to talk about an era of. And it's going to open doors for you. And you're gonna. it's impossible for you not to run other cultures and religions and get that they might have started taking ideas from other places and trying to seed them. But some don't make it past the chopping block. I do have one thing to add as well, um, and especially for listeners who, who have a depth of knowledge in terms of not only looking at it from a perspective of like all the way from first to revised or even V5 for this. One of the things that um, is very noticeable here is definitely the, the beginning of the schism and it being a natural progression within the clan um, that might have not been seen before. And why I mention it is because it does mention, of course, that there's a spotlight on, you know, Muslim characters being embraced along with Christian characters and how it starts to deviate away from that, that blood cult thought, right? I mean, the reason when you started seeing, and it even mentions it in that particular chapter, that when they started seeing the effectiveness of how easy it was to convert those of the Islam faith over towards the mentality that, of, of those that might convert initially to the path of blood, you are literally starting to inject that deviance into it. Now you're starting to see the, the fork in the road starting to split and it almost be, it's folly to believe that they wouldn't have gone the path that they did, right? And so then seeing that only lends more credence as to why that schism is, is that much more uh, impactful within um, the Asamite clan than others, or at this point, the Asamite clan, um, than any other clan who, who also introduces such schisms. To give you the direct and the last point I'll make before we turn it over to the follower set portion, because um, apologize, we really went deep on this, uh, but it, the schism itself, and a lot of books, they don't describe it. They don't even tell you why. And you got to remember Hakim left, which means there's an eldest by their, by their hierarchy. And whoever that eldest is sits over disputes and debates in the clan. One challenge is Islam and its prevalence amongst its warriors now. The other problem is, is that you had a dispute in-house in the first murder that took place at Alamut, outside of its heart's blood chamber. I love that, that they have that in this book. And they talk about basically a, a vizier and a, um, and a warrior were, were at a heated debate that took over centuries. And to the warrior, it was about honor, and there were some scrolls this vizier was trying to take, and that, that vizier was caught trying to leave Alamo with him and was caught by her rival. And, well, the, the got killed, right? Said, you're not going to get out of here with those. I won't let you do it. Killed that person, but left and left with the scrolls, right? Like, no one knows why the kill. Like, in other words, she didn't leave with the scrolls, but the scrolls weren't immediately found. And it took, they, they had to search to find and discover where those went. And that person is still at large. And so what it is, is on one hand, the warriors want to protect this, this warrior for doing right by Hakeem's law. You were a thief, no honor, look what you did, now you're dead, and that was a righteous kill. However, it violated their law. Only the eldest can kill someone of Asamite blood. And in other words, you had to bring him to justice. The sorcerers stayed silent on it. 
And so they asked Dallas Schrod, the head of the Sorcerer cast, to sort of oversee this. This is where the rift actually begins in-house. And there's no Hakeem to come by and pour a bomb on it and make it all better. And, you know, this is why the Viziers don't trust the Warriors. And the Warriors, for sure, don't trust the Viziers. Uh, but those Sorcerers still hold that position of, we're going to wait till Dad comes home. <laughs> we're not going to yeah. jump in. I felt as though the, the Sorcerers were really like the the band-aid that were keeping them together. Because like you said, they stayed silent and they were appointed as the well, as the judges of the other judges in that situation. Well, right? it's it's a weird band-aid. It's a weird term that you use there. They weren't holding them together. Specifically, they were looking at them from a complete neutrality, which would mean you're upset because he violated the laws, yet they were violating the laws to do it. How does that make you feel? Not now you're in trouble, not that I'm passing judgment, but tell me about that. Almost like therapists, literally waiting until Hakeem comes back before a decision's made. That's the part that kind of went, eh, what's going on there, right? Right. Okay. So not trying yeah, to fix it, but just uh, keep it keep it stable for now? It's, or it's just a... push... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, to me, that sounds seemed... completely broken. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, to me, that, that just sounds madness, right? So you have your warriors. They're there to judge. They judged, did the judgment, and then there's still the sorcerers that uh, get to determine that they acted out of line. It's acceptable punishment. They should have known full well that they were doing their job and accepted their punishment and then continued on as an example. Sometimes even the righteous thing will cost you your life. It's still fair. And that's the pettiness, right? That seems the overarching theme here. It's part of the pettiness that drove away Hakeem. But the question is to be asked, would that have happened if he was there? And it's deep, right? It's like, hmm, maybe. Uh, but what about those followers of Set, DJ? All right. So regarding the followers of Set, and specifically when we're taking a look at it from the low class, things of notice um, that I would definitely put out there as follows. Now, at, and it begins as it usually does. Um, it's been presented over and over again in terms of origin stories. But what makes it important here, um, and especially it being near Dark Ages and, and it as close to the game as possible, you present that story once again of Sutek set being the primary founder. And why this is great, especially during those origin stories, is because it lets credence to a lot of those other vampire stories in which people choose not to, or rather vampires choose not to acknowledge Cain as their primary founder. You know, this is where you start also finding, um, for example, Baharis, you know, Lilith is everything. Um, and in some other cases, um, we could even take a look as far back as maybe Baba Yaga or even uh, you know, Troil for Bruhal's lines where you start seeing a deviance of it and you could just point it back to a founder. For the Setites or the followers of Set specifically, this is the most important. Um, and why this is of note, especially in this book, is because they don't think themselves as a low clan. And this is going to be very, very strong as a point of ego, as a point of pride that they're going to carry throughout, you know, their lineage story moving forward from there. Um, other things worthy of note that I found interesting um, reading through this once again is it does detail the whole purpose behind Set. Right. Um, one of the easy, low hanging fruits is and perhaps one of the challenges to playing the clan in general is, well, we're just going to be the typical bad guys or we're going to be the, the twirly mustache uh, guy in the background. But Seth's uh. doing this all for a reason. Seth is literally doing it because he, you know, he thought of what he did was right. You know, taking a look at what Ra had in store for him. He drank. He wandered seven days and nights into the desert, dug into the sand, drank water, um, 
that brought him to give a piece of his soul up. And during that period in time, he figured out what Ross trick was. And that was pretty much, he's seen horse and Rod just build over and over and over again on the back of, of mortals. And to him, you know, it kind of paints him in the picture once again, from the perspective of the narrator that said is the people's champ, right? He's, <laughs> he's doing this because he's trying to free them in the background. He, he sees the big old bad in the back and, and everything he does is for that particular purpose. Um, but moving forward from there, you know, we, we follow Sutek further down the line up until we get to him missing, right? It speaks about how um, he was in his obsidian sarcophagus and out of nowhere, you hear this great rumbling and thunder before it ex explodes. Some even people say that it was bleeding blood up against the wall and everyone felt it. And uh, one of the things that gets reintroduced here is the prophecies of Set. Um, some folks don't even know where it may or may not lead, you know, speaking about certain things of this is the beginning of the end of the world question mark end of the world maybe not mm, we we could definitely take a look to see where that story might lead but it's a good plot hook because is it really the end of the world is this the heraldry of it is this is the beginning of it and this causes followers of set setites to to take a look around and wonder whether or not it's something worthy of approach worthy of concern or worthy of a heralding of what they were looking for anyway um Moving further down the line, one of the better things that I thought was great um, and speaks very highly about what it is to play a follower set is the division in which the Hierophants become um, a big thing, uh, where once there was a specific number, six of them end up going down to 13, six just disappeared to a city, whereas seven remain. And during that period in time, everyone's looking to, and then I apologize for butchering his name, Nakthorheb, um, who happened to be Sutex first. Right. And what makes it interesting is he doesn't want to do this job. He doesn't want to have to be the one to codify any rule because the whole point is not to codify and give you the freedom to be able to do so. But when when you're number one and you've been there to pretty much know probably the best meaning of Sutek's will, sometimes you have to step in. So this is a big point of contention that you're going to see further down the line. Why I mention this? Because further down, it'll talk about Constantinople. Um, and specifically, one of my favorite characters, and especially for those of you who play Vitas, Ketal, uh, you know, the Serpent of Eden there, he, he's great, <laughs> if, if only because you have to bring up the fact that um, it brings up what we were talking before, schisms in the road. So whereas most of the Sedites would be following the road of the Serpent, um, Ketal is a perfect reason why most people would probably end up following the road of Sin if you wanted to deviate from it. He, he looks upon... The fact that he is completely rebellious to the fact that there should be any type of codification at all uh, to the fact that these followers of set should be following any set way and so he throws abandon to the wind and he embraces as many as possible following this particular um, path um, and what it leads to is many 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 differences in ideologies uh, which give you the player the opportunity to discover and embrace what you do or don't like about following um, the followers of set um, what I also thought was pretty good uh, about this is um, I do know further down the line, they have things like points of contention and such. Uh, one of them that I thought was really good was definitely one of them, which was just labeled simply the prophecies of set. Go figure, right? Um, and it, it puts you up um, just to make it short and simple. And I'll let you read it. Um, it. It puts those who are Typhonists versus those which are Dedicatants, right? Do you preserve the knowledge that's there or do you not? Spoiler to a certain degree as well. The stereotype about you know, Sedites just being those who corrupt, that's just low-hanging fruit. You want your Sedites nice and scholarly because they have to know what it is that they're fighting for. They have to know exactly I do, why. I do have a question for you real quick. Sure. Right? I know you're in a, I know your methodology kind of going through here, but just kind of to add that, um, we're all listening, but 
what I'm curious about is, did you feel that this chapter was enough where they had here? Because I, I felt they'd be a little light on explaining what a follower set was to get you going. Or do you feel they were right on short enough to get an idea uh, to step into that role? And it's funny you should mention that because as I was reading it, it's, I do agree with you in terms of it being light. It, it gives you just enough to whet your appetite, but it doesn't give you enough um, to be able to sink your fangs, pun intended, um, into you know, I think that um, looking over the Aslamite by by difference to the followers of set section, there's there's a little more that's painted in there, if only because the, the history is that much more rich. But I also do feel that if it is written light, it is written light with a specific purpose, which is there should be no truth. And a lot of it is just myth. And it's always written from the perspective of that narrator. So if that narrator purposely just wanted to give you misleadings and or just enough for you to go ahead and start digging into, it is that. And this is the, the purpose of why we're having this discussion, right? Because from my perspective, as, as a person reading it, I could see the angle where I have to start making my own conclusions. I think that's what I would take a look at it as. Fair enough. Um, do you guys have any further questions here? We roll it over to Mike. I, uh, I, I do have something. Like, I, I love digging through the, uh, the set is a, is a champion, uh, you know, good guy philosophies um, that they kind of get to in, in different places as the uh the uh the basis for the follower of set philosophies um but it always seems to maybe in modern nights get corrupted into this point where the snake just started eating its own tail and the uh and the and the cult just kind of started getting a mind of its own and even just stepped away from its original philosophies uh does that does it go over that in any way shape or form in this it does, and it does it via the form of the fact that Ketal does exist. And it, it does it because you do have that one philosophy of you're supposed to free people from the chains, but it gets lost. It gets lost in translation when you start taking a look at the fact that for someone like Ketal, there should be no rules. If the whole rule was to break the chains, then why are we even codifying it in the first place? And in fact, if you take a look at it from a perspective of modern knights, that propaganda of the Sedites just being straight corruptors, I wouldn't doubt it if that just ends up being the fruit of what Ketal bore, right? He just, hmm. he mass embraced, he kept on spreading it out. And now you have misinformation. And I think the reason why the Typhonists just didn't get involved at this point in time is because if it's misinformation, let someone decide whether or not it's truth. So they kind of just let it run. And if they're going to police folks, they'll do it on their own end, but they don't got to let the public folk know what's going on. Right. <laughs> Some good insights. I like it. I just, I just got one. Um, and I asked because I've tried to do this as a player, uh, DJ, how do you make a person like this a teammate? Right. I've every blur thought that's going to come later. Right. We have a whole chapter about developing okay. a player and how to do that. Real quick, You're right. On the histories. Remember that. <laughs> remember that. We'll get to it. All right. In so, fact, Mike, it's showtime. I, right. I want everybody to know I've held Mike back for years talking about Gangrel. It seems like eternity. It's been his claim to fame. I feel like I feel like I'm James Brown handing the mic off to Michael Jackson right now, about to get on stage and show me how to get it done. So I'm gonna just hit me, Mike. Tell me about these game grow. Uh okay. I, I got I kinda I took a moment for this, right? Because it is it's personal. It's a clan that, that's dear to my heart. Um the the entry on Gang Grill is written as if to explain um Conflicts that fans of Gangrel might have had either with their storytellers or members of their coterie mates, right? Or members of their coterie. Um, it starts off with with origin myths, right? Um, and I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about those. 
but the point seems to be that Gangrel are um, they are centrifuges for conflict, right? Every time an individual Gangrel or the clan is fo forced to make a choice, there's like a a, a fracture. Um, they can never unify as a group, and they even seem to have trouble staying on paths that they choose for themselves in a manner that uh, we would all regard as successful, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I can't I can't pin down why that would be, and I, and I think it's on purpose. I think that they're they're written that way. Um, the, the first myth that the um, that the book gives us sets Inoya. They uh, universally acknowledged as the, the Gangrel clan founder uh, against her twin brother, Cherka. Right. And it tells us they have an argument. Um, it doesn't say why or what about. And then it tells us that there's a great war and it doesn't say why or what about. And, and the war between the two of these people um, it's, it's between people that they recruit from among mortals or or night folk or. We're not sure until it finally says that when Anoya's own people betray her, she curses them with vampirism. Like, okay, so uh, she's not making them into supernaturals, but they're able to fight Cherka's people who are. Uh, all right, and then vampirism is a curse, but also they're all shamanic and they revere these beasts. Um, and there's a lot of circumstance that's described, and it's it's as if it's told um, to create more questions. Would you it, say? It, would you say that a lot of that not saying it? Because we we know a book where that comes from, right? The Gangrel uh, DA book, the first introduction of it, goes deep, right? If you remember, because I was like, what's what's with the giants that the Gangrel are fighting? The giants <laughs> from the east. It didn't make sense, right? Right, but yeah. that's where it came from. I don't know if that rings a bell where you heard that from. I don't want to stop you there. Um, I'm just saying, I'm just citing it real quick. That's another example of why this book, not defining it out, if you just had this book. I'm not, I'm not certain if it hits the mark for that, but please uh, continue. Well, so the conclusion that I drew is that it doesn't matter. They're, the, what they're telling us about the gangrel is that if you choose to play one, um, you are choosing the hard road for the hard road's sake at every level of what you are right when you're immortal a gangrel is not going to pick you out unless they think you made a made a strong stuff uh and the book it, it does explain uh why there's this this trope about gangrels immediately a, a, abandon their children um because your your reward for survival is learning where you came from right and i, I had never read that anywhere else that's deep um, but they, they mentioned how, you know, Venture were known for being able to recite their lineage and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, apparently the Gangrel with their long tradition of oral history do the same thing, except you don't, you don't get that the night you're embraced, right? You get that at the, uh, the great big gathering some number of years after you get left in the woods the and it's thing. like, Right, like, oh, look, my my baby survives. Come here, let me tell you who your granddaddy was. Um, <laughs> Wait, a and it, Wait a second. Did you say clan gay girl is like a bunch of like neglectful parents? Just... <laughs> but this it's it's not neglect though. It's not neglect because if you can't make it, you aren't mine, and I fucked up, and I'm not gonna tell anybody. 
<laughs> well, that doesn't work in a court of law. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it sounds to me like someone on child support. I mean, so it's it, again, it's another one of these internal struggles that seem to be inherent to playing these characters. On the one hand, they're all about honor and and bragging about their deeds, unless their deeds are bad, in which case they'll just oh no that uh that that child that never happened it, it wasn't me uh i was outside of pride for a couple of weeks and then I, I left you know or they'll there's another portion portion of the gangrel chapter where they talk about people just making up their lineages which is a thing that i thought of as a venture thing oh yeah no of course i'm directly descended from mithras what are you talking about hmm. right but gangrel have these legendary um, ancestors that they all want to be a part of based on their philosophies about life and how to live um, out here on the fringes of society. I'm going to throw a pitch at you just to kind of help this along a little bit uh, okay. because you have the ability to make us want to talk about this forever and we, we went deep in the Asimite one so it's time. <laughs> okay. I'm curious about a couple things. One, what about the Ironheart? What did you think about that alternate mm. uh, Gangrel possibility of origin? Um, so with Canaro, I, to me, it just felt like another throwaway, um, parable, uh, about them not wanting to have claim, can't, blah, Cain be the clan founder. Um, now I think it's because the high clans have so much in their, uh, in their bag about, I come from this and my lineage is that. And my family is so and so, and our power descends directly from Clint Kane because Kane chose us first, and we are the best, we are the most favored. And uh, you know, Vedartha was Kane's favorite son, and so that's why we venture lead you all. And you should, it's 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 the divine right of kings thing, except in vampire form. Did and you say, I and did I you say the divine right of kings down. Is that what you said? I said kings, the divine <laughs> okay. right of kings, right? How you know every king wants to say I'm ordained because God said so. And if you if you against me, you're against God. It's the same thing, except it's Cain, not God, or Cain and God, whatever. Um, and so I don't think it's a coincidence that they 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 like to throw aspersions on the whether or not Cain is their founder. Um, you know, oh, that was the thing. So with the eye in her jar, <laughs> um, I appreciated them overall. I appreciated Did you just call that. Them eye in a jar. Eye in a jar. Yes. Eye in a jar. Uh, <laughs> Keep rolling, Mike. You got to do it. I was I was giggling. I'm sorry. Keep going. Keep going. So they're they're badasses, partially because Vikings are badasses, but also because they are um they they're they're emblematic of that like ah what is the word? My vocabulary is escaping me. They stay out on the edges and in response, uh, they stay out on the edges of civilization for longer than everybody else and are therefore responsible for the idea of Gangro that we have in the bottom. And that was, that was my favorite part of, um, reading the, the Gangrel entry in, in, uh, Guide to the Low Clans. They, they maintain their savagery. They stand strong enough to, to leave a group of people if they, if they wound them right in frenzy. Like I can't, I can't hurt the people I love. They look to me for strength. I'll come back when I can make it right. Um, they they stay close to their shamanic roots, which is apparently a, a thing that the clan looked 
looked back to Anoya for in, in um, ancient times. So I just, I know this has been kind of scattershot, but I, I, I've really, really, really appreciated the gangrel entry for raising more questions, but at the same time making it clear that the conflicts that always come up when you try to play a gangrel are, it's built in. That's that's a feature, not a bug. I don't think it's scattershot. I think that that section is a lot of what, you hit it all. You see everything that's in it, right? There's a lot of alternate histories and where you're from and how to do, but you hit the culture. And I think that's the most important part of that section, honestly, about what it is going forward. And because you, because you don't get enough of it in the modern man. <laughs> All you get is gangrel or savages. They tend to embrace park rangers, and they don't hang out. <laughs> <sighs> okay. All right. I'm sorry. No, I'm good. sorry. You're good. I'm sorry. Um, but it's, it's all right. Mike is very passionate about gangrel. Um, and thanks, thank you, Mike. I returned us over to Brennan uh, to talk about Malkavian, and and I was actually stunned about the Malkavians in this book. Yeah, um, I, I was too, honestly. Um, so to start out, like all the other sections, uh, it starts talking about the the clan founder, and I I love that first um, that first section on the on the founder because it I think it per personifies the entire clan uh, from that point forward. Uh, first off, you get several conflicting uh, stories about Malkav himself. Uh, I think my favorite one was that he was a, a seer, someone gifted with prophecy, but he used his tongue not to help uh, the, the city, but to sow strife amongst his brothers and sisters. Uh, and I think that was a great uh, example of how the clan can be a, uh, well, a source of chaos uh, in places they go, uh, that they're not, um, they may be able to see the truth, but you either can't understand, you can't decipher the message coming from them, or they can't, and uh, they're they're spreading the lies. Uh, but going on from that, um, they talk about the um, supposed destruction of his founder, of their founder, and how that, um, according to their uh, history, he has a, a very unique uh, way of being, and that he was ripped apart after uh, the second city fell. But rather than uh, one of his brothers or sisters diabolizing him and taking on his madness, they left him on the ground. And so his chilled uh, three of them, now known as the uh, Coronati, came and each of them partook of that blood so that for our, for now and for always, uh, the progenitor would be within the very veins of the clan. And I thought that's, um, I just thought that was awesome. Uh, so what's the Coronati uh, again, for those of us who have no idea? Uh, the Coronati are three children of, uh, of Malcab. Uh, they have a very, um, they don't go in depth about them, and I kind of wish they did, because they have a, a dual nature in the clan. They're both guardians, people that uh, uh, the Malkavians will sometimes even like pray to or cry out in the night to, as well as being boogeymen, right? Like uh, the, the plague, uh, the plague bride, I believe her name was, is the. Uh, is the only one named, but uh, them uh, calling for her aid, and then when she renders it after she leaves, they'll uh, uh, curse her name because uh, her aid came with some, uh, um, you know, unforeseen consequence to it. Right? I think that also is uh, pretty much highlights the clan is they're unpredictable. Uh, but from there, one thing um, that I thought was incredibly interesting in the uh in the daughter cities of uh, the second city as they called them uh it was 
the Malkavians framed it as they were the ones that ruled first, right? They ruled as uh, these priest kings uh, demanding blood sacrifices uh, and uh, ruling over these cities. And that the um, it wasn't until the, the Ventru, in a very crafty and sly way, uh, usurped them from their position and uh, forced them from being this high-regarded clan to a, a low clan. And I was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I don't know if I believe that or not, but uh, that's a that's a very Malkavian tale, I believe. Oh, we're going for it. This is your segment. Damn mm-hmm. venture. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, I forgot the most interesting part about that. They called themselves the Balim in that, you know, taking blood sacrifices and all that. And I was like, hmm. Um, um, that is the Baalim. Baalim. <laughs> the Baalim. Okay. We'll go right? with that. Right. You guys busted me out on it. I can't pronounce this ball. It turns into something different. <laughs> Right, All right, fine. Well, we you said you can't call it balls caress. You have to call it balls <laughs> caress. That's what we said. <laughs> All right, fine. I believe was exactly how that conversation went. Prefer a balls oh. caress personality. Oh my gosh, Mike. Anyway, <laughs> despite this, despite them being usurped by the venture, they stated that their hatred was actually reserved for the Bruja in that um, in Carthage. They were also partaking in these uh, these blood uh, human sacrifice rituals, um, but there. And I, I also thought this was a very Malkavian thing. They were not angry at the Bruja for these human sacrifices. They were angry at them because the rites were completely useless. They burned the victims rather than taking their blood, and that um, they thought the Bruja were just you know uh, throwing them to the winds. It's not for the I, sacrifices. It's no, because you're wasting the blood. It's not like out of all the clans in in uh, vampire, I never would have thought the Malkavians would be the ones focused on practicality. I can't help but think this sounds a little bit like some Carthage bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> always comes back to Carthage bullshit, man. Uh, but from there, they they jump uh, quite a ways. Uh, the next thing they talk about is the the coming of Yeshua, or uh, Jesus, as most people, I think, would know his name. Um, they they had a very, uh, this came as a surprise to me, uh, a good number of Malkavians saw uh, Yeshua as a second Malkav. Uh, and from them, some several several cults started to, to split off. One, uh, led by a man, I think his name was Andreas, uh, took it upon himself to uh, find Cain, and uh, I guess bring him the, the forgiveness given through Christ. Although they also note that after he left to find Cain, no one ever saw him again. Uh, so I'm assuming that didn't work out well for him. <laughs> <laughs> didn't get it done. All right. All right. Oh. Yet another guy who wanders off into the desert. <laughs> it's a recurring theme. So talk to me a bit about the, the clan itself, right? Like, directly to, like, uh, consistencies. Like, what What about it? So, the consistency... The only thing consistent with the, with the Malkavians is madness and inconsistency. There is no unifying... There does not seem to be any unifying uh, trait or mindset a Malkavian seems to have. And they're, they're across the board in terms of, um, well, who comprises their clan. Uh... True to their their ancient history, I would say there are still those that are seers and oracles uh, and advisors of some kind. 
Uh, but those are those are not a majority. That's not all of them that are given that are gifted with uh, a gift of foresight. Um, they're they're still a minority. Uh, some of them are. Um, some of them, uh, of course, in this uh, section they talk about the fools, the jesters of the courts. That is, um, I'll say that's a concept that's not a favorite of mine, but I'll leave it there. I do think that they did that concept justice. It was not a character there just for laughs. They are, even the fools that they show, they're still advisors to the courts and to the prince uh, that they serve because the jester, as long as they frame it as a joke and show themselves at the bottom of the rung of the ladder, they can show um, the prince the uncomfortable truth that his sycophants are ignoring. To what end, though? Right? That's, that's the question I think that comes to everybody's thoughts about Malkavians. You want to spread madness. There's some great untruth that you're trying to get out. What the hell is it? Why is it relevant? Why make a clan about people who can babble and whatever and claim that they're these awesome, profiting people about truth? What is, what is this wording that they're using? It's relevance. That you think? Uh, from this I think book. from this book specifically, uh, it's <laughs> honestly that that is hard for me to pin down. Like I like I talked about uh, so far the of of the seers in the in the night. Right there, it's the Malkavians that uh, comprise these. But for what reason? Uh, to to protect against the the end of times when the Antediluvians come back. But why are they the ones? I'll take it. I'll take it because I went through this section too and I was like, like, what do you, yeah. all right, so we're all crazy because crazy is cool because crazy and crazy, Carthage and crazy, crazy and more crazy, fools and crazy, derangement, mm-hmm. derangement. What, why? And then I read that too. It was like, oh, because apparently something scary was told and now they all can talk about it. In that weird part you mentioned uh, where the Coronati, right, found, they're the three that found the bits of Malkav. Mm-hmm. Each ate them and went to the four corners of the world. I was like, "What? What just happened?" <laughs> right? And, it and sounds like this. You know? a, a lot of these parts just sound like some absurdist play. Like, is this is this vampire waiting for Godot? What is happening here? Waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Me indeed. Just wow! Me indeed. Thank you, Reddit. That's awesome. Uh, but maybe a claim that I think I know I've been waiting for as well. Um, Dark Ages culture, actually, Vampire as a whole does Nosferatu justice quite a bit, I feel. And uh, Nick, <coughs> what do you think about that? Uh, I agree. There's uh, there's sections in here that uh, that kind of blew my mind. I think they did a great job with the Nosferatu. They start out giving the the same old story we've read and heard before with uh, Eb Similard, uh, getting his embrace from Zilla, the great hunter. Uh, Catches an embrace. She scars him. He gets jealous. Gets vengeful. Gets uh gets kind of butthurt about it. And then uh you know, makes a bunch of children to to rise up and uh you know, kinda take out that second generation. Which which well, we kinda know how that goes. Um They do bring about the uh the idea of the Nictaku in here. Uh we're still on that on that phase at this part of the Dark Ages. So the Nictaku are the original childer of, of Absimiliard. 
if I add that third eye in there. Um, and the one, of course, that got away, Baba Yaga, who saw the wickedness in him and uh, and decided she was going to run off to some cold tundra in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but to confirm which, that real quick, that's accurate. That's accurate. Baba Yaga is not an Ictiku, as they revealed unto herself. She's a direct embrace from Abyssimilard and opposed him. Uh, and you can look that up in Rage Across Russia. They have her in there. Uh, but they canoned her for that specifically. And it, it does a it does add a an interesting question to it then. So then like the Nosferatu at this point have to breed like cockroaches. Like no joke. All these people come from one lady. Uh, and the rest of them are all hunting these people. So not only are they popping up everywhere, they're getting smashed down everywhere too, which makes this this uh this crazy shadow war. That uh that happens in cisterns across the uh, the ancient world, <laughs> um, but they uh the first thing they do is that is they go over these knots and kind of where they would even be, and they attribute them all over the place to these uh these old legends like uh Rumpelstiltskin, and what blew me away, Grendel, I I would have been like a hundred percent, oh that's a gangrel somewhere out there, and they're like nope Nas, <laughs> I was like really, <laughs> you know the idea of like spriggans in the woods. Uh, Bendithi Mamu, uh, which is one I never even heard of. Um, what is it? But uh, we haven't either. What's a Bendithi Mamu? I, no idea. It's just uh, it's just one of them that they that they reference in there. Okay, um, gotcha, gotcha. No problem. My guess is that there's some crazy Eastern European folklore, like most of the other ones are. <laughs> well, I can give you insight as to what what they're doing here. Is again, they're abbreviating because yeah. these these are bloodline offshoot Nosferatu. That they mentioned in the previous Dark Ages introduction of the Nosferatu themselves. Because now time has passed, right? Back then that was a long night. And they're like, this is what they are. Now in the yep. War of Princes, they're giving you what they're a memory. Nobody really knows what they might have been. Uh, but they um they do bring about an interesting concept, and that's these these Warren's keepers, right? So when eventually civilization started rolling in, places like Rome, uh, these large giant cities they found purposes for, for sewers and cisterns and things like that. And these Nosferatu buried themselves underground where they could never be found again. And then they got these ideas, well, we'll just teach the mortals how to continue digging these tunnels around. And then we'll just live inside those, which was a great idea. Um, you know, up until uh, the Cappadocians loved them as well. And so this subtle... Uh, kind of standoff between the Cappadocians and the and the Nosferatu happened, where the Cappadocians are like, "I see you wandering around our burial grounds," and the Nosferatu are like, "But we're just trying to stay out of the sun," <laughs> and they're like, "Hmm, okay, you stay on that side, we'll stay on this side," <laughs> which is essentially how it kind of works. My guess is that the Cappadocians were like, "Get out of here," and the Nosferatu just kept popping up and like, "Fine, then just stay over there." Oh, <laughs> uh, but uh you get this weird theory that kind of pops or that pops into my mind where uh they're like well we can't build these giant elaborate catacombs and uh and it, it breaks the question like well why not they're like well if you dig too deep then you're asking for the nictitku or a similiard to come like the balrog from the dwarves you know it's exactly oh they had a great place in Rome, but they delved too deep 
and the progenitor came. Wait, <laughs> so are they, coming, are they coming for us from above or from below? What's going on? <laughs> if, if you dig too deep and you drag their attention, shouldn't you be like living in skyscrapers instead? <laughs> hey, listen, I didn't come up with the myth. This is their own thing. <laughs> All right. But uh, but we fast forward into uh, into modern times, or, well, what is modern times for this book? Um and they uh, they bring up something which I thought was absolutely amazing, and that's the Hospitaller Order of Saint Lazarus. These are stone cold badass motherfucking Nosferatu that uh, that can go straight to war the same way at the same level that uh, that many of the high clans can, and earn respect that way. But the uh, the the catch of it is they're Hospitallers for lepers. Right, they started out as uh, as just building these giant uh, hospitals and colonies for for these uh, for these lepers, and then they brought in Crusader knights who had caught the disease and contracted it in different ways. And these guys said, "Well, cool, we're with you. What we're going to do is we're going to you know guard these uh, you know these different hospitals from any of these forces that would come." And they ended up winning massive respect across Constantinople, Jerusalem, Acre, uh, all these different places. And uh, even so much as uh, as winning respect from Saladin himself uh, and being allowed to stay even after the the conquest of Jerusalem. And uh, to me, if I was going to play a Nas in this time, I would 100% play one of these. To me, that's like, all right, I don't have to be a skulking sewer rat. I can, you know, like walk tall behind a nice pot helm <laughs> as long as nobody can see my my face. Um but uh, it, it does wrap it into uh, interesting plot hooks, which they, they kind of want to get into with different things that, that come around with Nosferatu's. Some of that is the furores, or however that's pronounced, which is uh, <laughs> something you may remember from The Ashen Thief. Uh, these are kind of these rebellious proto-anarchs that are kind of popping up around in different areas that are bucking the existing traditions as they were before anything really blows open. But uh, the idea is that they'd be recruiting Nosferatu with them. And uh, and you might be able to interact with that kind of weird line. What I'm gonna Another, you, uh, go what ahead. I'm, what I'm going to ask you real quick is that uh, out of the Fiores right there, um, what is their take on the Omen War then? <laughs> the Omen War, interestingly enough. So... They don't really get into a lot of detail with what's going on with the Omen War. A lot of it is kind of like, well, that's uh, that's going on between the the Tremere over there and the uh, and the Zemis over there, and we don't have a whole lot to go with it, except for this one plot hook where click you discover that the gargoyles are not necessarily these weird magical contraptions but might just be some friends of yours. <laughs> and then they're like, we'll jump in on this, right? Because God knows what's going on with these crazy Tremere's. But th they literally say, well, you can look at it as Zemis lies, or you can look at it as blasphemous Tremere rituals. Either way, kind of, there's, there's a hook in there. There's a reason to do. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Um, regarding this, um, I think that the NAS, I agree with you, I think the NAS section was, was well done. Um, I'm going to try to get through uh, two parts of this in the interest of listeners real quick. 
um, before I turn it back, give you a break, Nick, real quick. Um, I'm gonna go over the Ravno, which is a is a hard thing. Clan Gambit, as uh, I prefer to call it, as I've heard it said to me, is is a bit different than you think of it. Here they take a hard turn uh, to talk about the. Uh, I'm gonna butcher it. I'm warning you now. Caravalanisha uh, Vrana. It's an epic poem that relates to their creation by Indian gods to pursue their Zvadharma, their celestial purpose, and ends unfinished with the struggle against the demonic shadows of themselves. And they kind of use this poem as like a, as like verbal trickery. I know you're shocked, but here's this here's this thing. I'm gonna like instead of using the highfalutin names that I'm gonna butcher anyway. Um, I'll, I'll stick true. Okay, fine. Origin of the clan: the quick version. The Sidi Hadzizaya are the divine ones that, according to their origins, were simply the appointed uh, beings to protect man from demons. They believe there are demons everywhere, tearing apart and tormenting man. And the Indian gods are like, no, here's the divine ones to stop that. And they did. But these demons, because that's what they do, eventually corrupt them, right? They seduce them, teach them sin, sex, eating, gluttony, all that stuff. Everything that the flesh could love and enjoy, it's out there. And you can do it. And you should do a lot of it. Then it develops into something I would rather consider crazy. Um, they say, all right, we're now going to curse these guys. And uh, what they choose to do with it is that they, uh, the gods curse them with vampirism, basically. Well, not exactly. They curse them like sunlight will burn them and they can only eat the sin that they cultivate, and it, which is flesh and blood. And they got to hide from the sun. I said that. But then, you know, we, we've done our job. They're cursed. That's it. They'll, they'll, they'll chill out now. And what happens is that's not what happens, right? Not what, that's not what happens at all. Um, they take it as that they're now these divine ones that were meant to focus and double down on, on causing the sin everywhere and kind of reveling in it. And the gods go, well, that wasn't our point. We really wanted to curse them, so we're going to double down and do something else. And then something else is Zapathasura, right? What Zapathasura is, it means a cursed demon. You guys would may recognize this term as being the actual Ravner, uh, Ravno progenitor name that's used. But they got kind of a crazy idea that the gods made him out of all this negative stuff specifically to hunt down and deal with these sinners, right? These, uh, well, those who produce and cultivate sin. The Ashuri Zivaya that I can't pronounce, but those guys. And um, you get the idea. This here is an, an incredibly alternate story um, where they're trying to add that Eastern um, feel to it. And it definitely hit that mark. But now they cultivate the fact that it's a caste system or a jati. And what a jati means is just that, the, the caste you're from. And that there's a Western Ravno jati and that there's an Eastern Ravno jati. And, and as far as a caste goes, the Western is the one that is lesser, right? 100%. And that's the theme they're going with. And then it breaks down further, right? Um, they talk about that Ravana is still the name of the Antediluvian according to some Western Ravno whom honor their eastern roots, basically it's still the accursed demon. But there's two different perspectives they see it as, right? Now, this breaks down further, and this is where I think the Ravnor are the most convoluted, complicated clan to ever get behind, and I understand why their maybe popularity waned quite a bit. And it comes down to that the short version, you have five Jati in this book. You have the Alexandrites, which are Egyptian Ravno. They believe that nothing is permanent, everything can be replaced. Uh, the Bashirites follow a Christian Methuselah named Bashir. 
They believe in a Christianity meets Cainite heresy of sorts. Basically, the apocalypse is coming and Christ will return. You know, and they, they form a cult behind it. And it's weird that they just didn't call them Christians, but I guess it's different because they still have the whole Cain thing thrown in. <laughs> then you have Sybarites. They're Roman Ravno, which blew my mind. I'll be honest, I never read about a Sybarite. And when I saw this blurb here, I know why. Right? They basically believe that by becoming the avatar of sin, they can turn humanity's greatest failing into their personal success. So in other words, no excess forbidden, no pleasure goes too far. Right? They created the road of paradox. So that's interesting, right? They also believe in destroying any canine unworthy of defending their position. And now you know why they were not popular in Rome. Right? That's, that's it's not going to go well. Holy shit. Right. It's like, <laughs> what are you doing? And then you have the Yoriari, which approached the road of paradox of the belief that items and energies of power are finite. And then in order for the world to avoid stagnation, they must destroy these items so the new can be born and move us forward in sort of a cycle fashion. Like, it directly opposes the Sybarites, right? Sybarites are more or less like, kill the unworthy, but leave everything else because we want to control basically all the things good. Yoriari are like, nah, put it all to bed. Interesting enough, the founder of the Yoriari is allegedly the child of the Sybarites. The one <laughs> who founded that. And so they're, they're not exactly friends. Through it all, there's finally the Fade Mites, right? And uh, they're probably, probably not pronounced. I'm calling them Fade Mites. That's <laughs> what it is. They're an offshoot of the Alexandrites. They believe in rebellion against common clan beliefs, right? They pursue, they pursue virtue instead of vices, refusing to believe in sin is inevitable. They're like mm. superheroes, right? Hmm. They, they believe that, yeah, I could be a thief, but why not just stop fever, right? Why not oppose it? It's in me to steal. No, it's in me to stop it then because I best know where it would happen. And so, so they do that. And they give you conflict in this book with them that no other clan has gotten so far, mm -hmm. right? Bottom line, you got the Fade Mites, and they, they decide that they're going to kill these Sybarites because it looked like the Sybarites were smuggling people in the bowels of a ship for nefarious things. They would be right to assume so because the Sybarites were doing that left and right. However, this time when the Fade Mites intervened and killed the Sybarites, oh, it turns out they were asked by the prince to smuggle some people to safety. But but the Sybarites didn't tell the Fade Mites that when they showed up. So something <laughs> happened in there. And then the Sybarites turned around and said, we want the death of the Jati of the Fade Mites, which has never been done. And they haven't been happy since. And I sat there and said, if I were an author who just wrote this and just got this material, and I get it after this point, and all the renditions that Ravna have gone through, I'd let this fade as well. Bring on Ravna. And the weird satellite beams of sunlight and drop the nukes and just get rid of them. I was right here like, burn it with fire. This is too much drama, bro. Just, just moving on right through here. So, um, with with that, please, Nick, save us. The Tremere here are at the end, and we need we need that saving uh, from the from Ravana before he gets a hold of us again. Oh man, they uh, it's interesting how deep they went with the history of uh of the Tremere in here because you got to remember at this point uh like around the time frame that this book is 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 written for the uh, Tremere are a whopping 200 years old ish right uh they go all the way back to the library of Alexandria right <laughs> and they're like oh, yeah yeah right cuz the uh the hermetics is really what we're talking about the history of at this point we're talking about the order of hermes and uh and they're like well you know they uh 
the Hermetics really grew in power in Alexandria back around the the, the second century AD, which uh, if anyone can remember, was the time that the uh, that's right that the Library of Alexandria disappeared. <laughs> so how very convenient, yeah. Um, but uh, they went from there and then they they bombed out into uh, into Rome in these uh, these crazy Roman cults. Uh, doing different kind of crazy magics. They also went into areas of Gaul and different areas like that and, uh, you know, ended up uh, performing rituals with these, um, you know, proto-Druidic types. Uh, but uh, eventually they all kind of come together and they're like, hey, what are we doing out here anyways? And they're like, yeah, bro, I totally understand. Why don't we all get together and kind of like make this thing a real thing? And they're like, let's do that. But you know who hears wind of this? My man Tremere, who's like, hey, I got this invitation in the mail for this dude who's been teaching me all the magic. He's like, but fuck him. <laughs> Somehow he's going to magically disappear. And then me and the next Prentice in line, we're not going to be able to agree really who's going to the meeting. So we'll just both go as the other guy slowly disappears throughout time. <laughs> <laughs> um, which kind of gives you an idea as to what kind of a, a crazy uh, opportunist asshole that Tremere is. Uh, this is no surprise. Uh, to anyone who's who's read House of Tremere. And it tells you specifically in this section, if you don't get what's going on here, go read it because uh, there's way better details in there. But Tremere is the lucky bastard who, who as like all of this area gets cut up, he's like, yeah, I'm going to go to this area, you know, kind of over, uh, over by Hungary and shit, where uh, apparently there's like a ton of this, as we like to call it. There's this magical energy everywhere around there we don't know what's causing it but i mean like nobody wants to really bomb there because there's fucking werewolves and there's fae and there's these uh these vampires everywhere and it's really hard to you know get by but fuck it unlimited magical power <laughs> so uh they go over there and they do these mad experiments they're popping chantries up in the woods all over the fucking place they're building these giant uh basically uh havens of magical power and they're slowly but surely pulling all this vis out and then eventually they all kind of sit around and they're like so what's going on with this uh apparently all this unlimited magical power is now like very limited <laughs> uh <laughs> we don't know what happened but uh it's kind of empty now and our experiments suck my man Gortrix like steps up and uh and he's like hey you know what i got a solution for you all why don't we just figure out if the vampires have a secret? We'll just capture a couple. We'll stick them in the basement. We'll <laughs> fuck around with them. And then, uh, and then see if we can come up with some magic. And, uh, and, and Tremere's like, hmm, okay, come back to me when you have a plan. Like three months later, Gortrix comes back. He's like, I got a plan, bro. He's like, but we're all going to have to get involved in this. And then, uh, and he does what's called the great experiment, uh, which, uh, Interestingly enough, uh, he promised everybody immortality, right? He didn't promise them extra magic. He didn't promise them anything like that. It was just immortality. And they're all like, well, you know, I am like 300 years old. Fuck it. Let's try some immortality. They go through this whole thing and then they all wake up and they're vampires. And they're like, shit, well, we're immortal, but I really got this need to feed on blood. And they're like, Gortrix, why'd you do that to us? And he's like, I don't know. Like, maybe my mistake. I thought we were just going to be immortal and shit. <laughs> which, which is pretty much how they phrased it. So Gortrix kind of like, 
oops, my bad. He basically just becomes like the, the joke asshole uh, in the corner where they're all kind of like, well, mm, you, don't do it again. <laughs> and we all know the future of that. It's like an mm-hmm. 80s Coke party you just refuse. <laughs> we should all try this. Are you sure? Yeah, it was a bad idea. It was. <laughs> but all of this spawned uh, what's called the Omen War, where uh, the ancient uh, prophets of the uh, of clans and Mies, the um uh the ugh, words don't fail me now Kuldun? the Kuldun sorcerers all uh all kind of get together and they're like we're hearing rumblings from beneath the earth and we're getting these visions and these portents that are coming forward and they're saying these wizard wizard assholes are big trouble and we need to kind of fuck with them and uh and everyone's like yeah whatever except for my man uh Ruthven, who's like, all right, well, uh, what do we really need to do? And uh, I'm like, well, we'll just go and we'll siege the castles and uh, and and kind of fuck with them. At this time, though, the the Tremere are kind of like, hmm, we're all vampires. Our magic doesn't quite work right, but let's keep making everybody vampires, and uh, and then and then we'll be able to kind of hold off this wave. It was a terrible mistake. A terrible mistake because the Zemis know how to fight vampires, so they start fucking slaughtering them. Um, but uh, eventually, they they kind of get wise to it, and they keep just enough mortal Tremere around because they don't quite understand how to battle with Tremere. And then once again, my man Gortrix pops down in the basement, says, "I'll come up with something." And what he comes up with are gargoyles. So if you can imagine kind of what this war would look like, this omen war, as it were, is uh, these giant schlakka like storming out of uh, these these villages and uh, and these gargoyle monstrosities flying down from the heavens in what would only have to be the craziest, coolest uh, Michael Bay scene I've ever seen, <laughs> uh, just tearing it up on the on these ancient battlefields. But uh, around this part is where we get into the difficulties of Clan Tremere. And that is Vampiric Society, which they're so late to the game, they have no idea how to handle anything. They show up to like Prague and they're like, hey, bro, what's up? We've been building these uh, these chantries around. Uh, what do you think is going on? And then the princes are like, you're in my domain. Wait, how did you become a vampire? All these weird questions are coming up. They're like, "Oh, we we stole our embrace and shit," and uh, and they're like, "Yeah, whatever. No, you didn't." But anyways, since you're in my domain, uh, let's start talking about what you guys are giving me. And it starts this whole level of politics they just weren't prepared for. Um, and uh, and eventually, Tremere gets this idea. He's like, "Well, the only thing that's really holding us back is that we don't have the blood potency that we're looking for. These elders got it up on us because." They are bombing around with this thick, thick elder blood. He's like, if we could find some poor soul and suck him dry, then we could, you know, get ourselves to where we need to be. Uh, and that really is uh, the start of their uh, their crazy endeavor into the diablerie of Saulot. They don't go too far into it other than somehow they found it. And here they are now. And they were able to diablerize him, which is a... Uh, as vague as they always get on that kind of subject. But uh, the funny part I like about this, and, and I do like this, is that in the middle of all this, in the middle of dealing with vampiric politics, in the middle of 
dealing with the uh, the Omen War, these crazies of Mies that are like, well, fine, fuck them. And, and in the middle of this uh, this madness, the mages all go, huh, where how's Tremere been? <laughs> and uh, and they're like, well, they, they never show up to our meetings anymore. And someone's like, I heard a story that they did some wicked ass shit. And they're like, all right, well, let's let's form a council. Let's talk about what we're going to do. Very hemetical. In the middle of that, they're all like, fuck it. These guys are gone too far. We're going to declare a mage war on them. They call it like the Masasa War. And they're just like... And so Tremere is just taking it from all fronts like champs and somehow not wiped out. The interesting thing about them is that uh, they don't understand that they're not like at the top anymore. And, and they're trying to put themselves there. And they're doing it while being attacked on all fronts which I think is a, a huge testament to this clan and this period of time. For me, very exciting stuff. I, uh, I don't know. I like your rendition. I think that was more than easy to follow. And, uh, and it is because, obviously, we know the story. We read the book, too. But the uh, ultimate factor is, is that the interesting point about Goratrix and, the, and how he's introduced is kind of the contention point, right? Like, he clearly had his motives, but they're not necessarily defined, which makes it... <laughs> An interesting addition to the low clans here. Yep. To say the least. Um, but that takes care of chapter one. I know. Long way to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any with chapter <laughs> one, um, what I'm going <laughs> to stop laughing at me. Had to be talked about. You know, things are deep. And really, that's what this book is, is talking about the low clans specifically. And how to play the low clans, I'm just going to make this a catch-22 and uh, kind of roll into it a little bit. Uh, just a little bit. Um, do you guys feel that the conceptualization, creating and developing low clans from the clans that you reviewed in that perspective is there to hit the whole picture for a starting player or someone to play a campaign uh, for uh, this book? Oh, beyond that. Beyond that. Yeah. I feel like everyone who plays a gangrel who's interested in the clan should play it out of the Dark Ages first and start with this book. Because you will have more texture. Um, you'll have a, a greater depth of understanding of why that dude with the claws and the cat eyes lives up on the mountain, even though they're the perfectly good city down here with much better view. Yeah. Right? Because when you see that trope in, in the modern books, it's like, okay, I guess this is what they are. Why aren't they just werewolves? There's clarity, definitely, from this book. Fair enough. What about you, DJ? I think from a followers of set perspective, um, it's a toss-up. And I think one of the contentions I definitely want to say about this particular chapter is it, uh, it it's a green light, red light. And the reason I say that very quickly is because it's like, all right, here's a couple of stereotypes or here's a couple of things that you'll, you'll want to encounter as a character or when making a character. But then it'll be like, but then you don't have to play it. So then why give me an idea that I, I don't feel stuck with? I think that I got more out of reading what I wanted to get from a follower set character from, you know, the light blurb that we had in chapter one didn't hear. And to quickly answer um, Mike, especially when we're talking about creating a follower set character, all revolutions, especially because that's what, what uh, Sutek is, is like the, the sudden revolution, not the daddy of it, is uh, you don't start from without, you start from within. So if you're creating a set eye character, one thing that most people should be paying attention to is you're working with a coterie. You can't just be working on itself. You got to help people and extend that hand to be able to, to uh, make it work. 
Um, and I think that's one of the things that didn't get highlighted too well in this particular chapter, but it's, it's all inference at that point. And I think this is why um, getting it from chapter one was much more impactful than getting it in this particular chapter itself. That's um, to chime in on one of mine here, the, the Asimai clan over and done, I would say no. Um, it very much stereotypes them completely in uh, the conceptualization, creating and developing of them um, in this section. It talks about how my, my number one contention point is talking about how Islam takes over the clan. It didn't take over the clan. What it did was it was introduced to those warriors um, who wanted to, well, who bought into it, right? Some people were going to take that religion to heart. The Crusades had a big hand in it. And they just said, okay, well, everyone should work on your melee, your brawl, your stealth, your, all your stuff uh, that you would need to fight. And I was like, okay, well, what about the Viziers? And they turned around and said, yeah, what about them? They, they can learn politics. Okay. But it says nothing that the sorcerers. Like the sorcerers exist as that third that you've just got to figure it out. Not really going much into the sorcerer other than they're the ones who were, well, as Brent Trump put it earlier, they're the band-aid to the clan somehow. And not much going there. Uh, to talk about the Malkavians in this section, um, I don't, I, I'm not going to say this is going to give a player a good idea of how to make a Malkavian character solely because at every point in this, when they talk about Malkavians, they say there's no consistency with them. They can be anything under, well, not under the sun, under the moon, I guess. Um, like, you're never going to find, uh, even between Sire and Chilled, uh, because of the reason why a Malkavian would Sire. Like, it's incomprehensible to anyone but that Malkavian. So, uh, I do think of, in a good way, I, I do take that as a positive, though. I do think you can spin most concepts under a Malkavian character. Uh, so at least they have some flexibility there. Sure, but can does this guide you to do that? So you can do it, but if I'm new to Malkavians and I got this section to guide me, from conceptualization that's visualizing what a Malkavian character is, creating it in the instructions in, in, that they have in there, and even developing it beyond that, do you feel they do exactly what you just said? <clears throat> I feel they do uh, exactly as I said in that they they leave it open to you. Like uh, in, in this book, like we've talked about so far, they have uh, they go more in depth, I guess, mechanically talking about how you can develop this clan, how you can start them out. Even the development says this is going to be completely dependent on what your concept is. The traits you're going to increase are going to be the ones specific to this. There's not there's not one across the board for Malkavians. Um so I guess you can take that as instructions. Uh, I personally don't see them that way. Uh, but maybe that's just because of how the clan is written. Okay. Uh, what about you, Nick? Uh, from what I've seen uh, in, in both the, the Nosferatu and the, and the Tremere clan, there's more than enough tools given uh, to kind of give you an idea how, that, uh, how to make one of those characters where they fit into in this setting and how to kind of assimilate yourself into that. There's sections in here that's specifically designed for it called the uh, the player toolkit, where they just break down tiny little paragraphs and tiny little hooks that, you know, if the player's uh, a little short on ideas, they can just kind of latch on to these. Um, and that's uh, it's for every single uh, clan in the section 
in the in the book. I think uh, I think it's good. All right. Um, and I think it's obvious for me talking about the Ravno. Um, the Ravno here are the best you're going to get from any of the books I've seen. And how to build yep. them to be a full clan diversified. They more than help you do that with this uh, with this process here in chapter two. Uh, DJ, you got something for me. Yeah, the only thing I would say about that Ravno section is it adds that one sidebar where it says replace where, where there was a, a section in there. I'm paraphrasing, of course, you could read it, but there's a section that says, you know, uh, if you're going to play a loner, beware playing a loner. But then underneath it, it says now replace loner in that section and, and replace it with the phrase beware playing a wacky, like disturbing charlatan because it is yep. true. You know, um, while this book does help you, um, and I'm, I'm sad to say it, but while this book helps you play the most complete Ravno you can during the Dark Ages, and, and this is the most you know, detailed way to do so, unfortunately, Chapter 1 just kind of wrecks you in terms of trying to be able to wrap your hand around it. There's the, the inconsistencies between trying to play one of Indian heritage versus one of Roma heritage, and then all these five different Jati to play with. Um, it's almost to the same degree that you take a look at the Asimites, and they give you a little bit too little and not enough. You know, it's like, sure, they give you everything to play a warrior on the Yasmite side. And on this end, they'll give you enough information to, to play one of the Jati, but it, it it doesn't feel as complete. And that's the sad part. It's, it is the most complete, yet sadly, it might not be enough. Right. I could agree with that. Um, to, my, to my big contention with this book, and, and for now, I, to let everybody know, I really do like it. Um, we're going to skip chapter three. We told you this is Bloodlines. Get it, read it, love it. Um, but chapter four, Blessings of the Unclean, all that crunch, my only problem is when they talk about derangements for disciplines, right? Here's something you haven't seen up until now, and what, what is this about? Um, they have all sorts of qualifications of how one can get unbalanced in disciplines, and or derangements for it, some temporary, some permanent, depending on what goes on. And I had a, a complete distaste for it. And that is because it's it's putting you in a system that is now going to be over-crunched. So as a storyteller, we know it's yes and, right? It should never be just no without great justification, at least a discussion explaining why. But when you're talking about how if I'm a bruja and my unique bruja focuses on potence, obfuscate, in lieu of presence, and I take celerity, and who knows why, maybe it's the style I hunt, maybe it's my concept or whatever, because Obfuscate's not a clan discipline, and it ends up being higher than two of my others, I get a derangement for it. What are we doing? Right? It seems like they're saying everyone's a Malk now. In unless you specifically build the way we're talking, you're going to have a slew of derangements. It even has a blurb talking about starting characters can get derangements because they don't know what they're doing. And I was, I read that and I was like, that's not, not for me. Um, that's the one part I completely would throw out the window. Um, you may wonder why. Storyteller control is always going to be something I battle with. You do need to have some control of your game. You, after all, dictate the story. But your players are your protagonists. And between them telling their story and you telling the rest of the world, there should be a unified story of entertainment. And we have to agree upon the same rules. Now, if I suddenly need a, an NPC that's going to have a strange grouping of disciplines or whatever, do I not add three to four arrangements on top of it? What do you guys think of the system? I don't like the system, but uh, to play devil's advocate for it, I can see it being... Uh, my first read of this was that this was like a cane bro deterrent. 
That's that's why it was come up with. It's exactly what it is. Yep. Okay. Well, glad I'm not alone in that read. Um, <laughs> that being said, it's a useless deterrent. This I don't see this as adding any kind of enjoyment to a game, nor does it make sense. I think in that particular regard, I could, once again, also playing devil's advocate, you have to kind of wonder why it was put in there in the first place. Yes, it could be a cane road deterrent, but it also makes me wonder whether or not it was also added to a specific type of flavor. I know that in other supplements, specifically when we start taking a look at Requiem, they, they talk more about what happens when the mind starts getting addled by vampires who rely heavily on disciplines to begin with, right? Your reality starts to change, etc. And, and this is probably where at one point or another, one of the authors was like, you know what, this is the seed of what I kind of see happening. Um, to see whether or not it would work. Although mechanically speaking, like Brennan said, it, it it unfortunately it misses the mark there, you know. But this is probably, at least for me, the first time you actually start seeing a seed of what could happen in the future regarding that. What now, is, go ahead. What is weird about this? My only contention point: you fundamentally don't understand what a discipline is. This is where a player read as a storyteller. I'm telling a player that it's about the beast, it's about their vampire, it's about what they are as a creature. And here's these disciplines. And now they're saying basically a discipline is held at any gym anywhere across the Dark Ages. And you just sign up. And if I want a certain discipline, I could go in and get it. But if I'm getting too much training, I want to balance out my traps with my biceps. I'm not going to go back to Carthage to work on my potence because I just tried to get all that fortitude I wanted at the other gym. I need to balance it out a bit. And as long as I keep this weird tier balance, whatever, it takes it away. It makes you think about building dots and points in a sheet versus if I'm a gangrel in the wild, like Mike loves talking about, and he's right, and I'm out there and I'm learning it, and I'm I'm just not quick enough, right? But every time I frenzy to get that blood, my beast is just burning through blood, trying to help me get it, and you know, what have you, and eventually I do. I get my deer or I get my walking woodsman, whatever it is, I might start to develop celerity. Right? Because speed is a thing needed and the beast is responding to it. Now because that's not in clan I shouldn't have it? No, it's one of the base 13 if you need a mechanic thrown at where they talk about that's a fundamental, right? Potent celerity and fortitude is something intrinsic to the beast. And it needs it's developed through finding obstacles for it to grow into, uh, to defeat those obstacles, all based on the blood. And so I feel this takes away from that by saying it's not about the blood, it's about the ST feeling comfortable with powerful players because they can develop in a system that goes up to level 9 that they even have in this book. And that, to me, it's kind of cowardly. If you're an ST, you're, you, nobody should be sitting there going, I gave the XP, he saved up for level 6, I guess he gets it now. Right? That's why there's a story and a rationale and a good mentor and all that that should lead up to that. And I feel this says, ignore that. Now you just hit him with the hammer and tell them, if you do that, you're going to be deranged. I, I, think, I think there's a place for the mechanic. Um, it, is, it is kind of sideways. Right, especially from someone like myself who likes to be versatile in, in, in their capabilities as a player. <laughs> but uh, I think that the place where I would use the mechanic like this is if some element of the story I was trying to tell um, had to do with the differences between the clans, like way back, you know, first 13. Um, and I was trying to say that there's something fundamental about the nature of one clan's beast to the next. And so if they start mingling too much or you go too far down a path and your beast isn't mature enough to handle it, um, 
then there can be unforeseen psychological consequences for you doing a thing that's not part of who you are. Like, I think, I think you could make room for a mechanic like this if that struggle with the beast was like a, the central, the central part of your narrative. I, I wouldn't use it in every game, but I don't, I don't hate it if, if, if that makes sense. So just to be clear, you're going to play in a game and ST tells you we're using this. You're happy with being forced to put points? Well, actually, I would find <laughs> it, like if the ST told me up front, I would say, why? What the hell for? But it's if, I wouldn't I like it then. That's if it was, it is, Mike. You're, you're literally sprinkling polish on it. Yeah. Right. I am. I am absolutely polishing this turd. That's what I'm doing. I'm trying to find a way to, that it could be fun. Right, like if 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 the ST doesn't tell you right, and then you start hallucinating, or you start feeling like a meth head, or you start wanting to cover your face because you've been using obfuscate too much, and you can't explain why all these strange feelings are coming along, and he just doesn't tell you that he's using this mechanic out of the book, it could be interesting. It could contribute to the psychological horror. Well, what I'm going to help you out with is the one thing I'm going to point out. Remember. My point of view doesn't come through a specially selected, constructed game where this mechanic works. It comes from, <laughs> we got a base game, we got this book, and we're going to run this Dark Ages game, and we're running it from the War of Princes perspective. Does yeah. this mechanic work? And to me, no. No, and you're right. You're right. You're right. It's okay. It, it's okay to say anything you like. I want to make it. It's just to that point. I, I listened to you making special circumstances. And I was like, hey, no fair. I wasn't making special circumstances. <laughs> You know what I will say to that, though? It's, it's a crazy thing because we were having a conversation as we were reading this. And one of my biggest things that just popped into my mind was you're reading a Dark Ages book and you take a look at the way that the disciplines are spread out and how disciplines are different than what you read in like Revised or even B20. And you say to yourself, how did people put up with Dark Ages in terms of its mechanics, but we'll put up with V5 in terms of how it puts its own mechanics up there? And I was like, yo, people swallowed this? They legit went like, I'll accept Dark Ages, I'll accept Revised, but then V5 came out, switched up the mechanics on them, and they were like, I don't want this pudding. Uh, and so, it, you know, <laughs> as I was reading that, that's what kind of caught my attention was because there are so many different takes as to how each system runs its game and how it wants to interpret the mechanics. And I don't know if it's because of a setting situation, um, and it makes more sense in that particular setting. You know, maybe it's a little bit wonkier there, or it just was more flavorful to do so. Or if it just was like, let's not, you know, let's not streamline this and just go our separate ways. And, you know, from a perspective of a player and a person who's purchasing the book and then reading this now and also playing B5, I was like, I don't get why it was accepted in one and yet not in the other. So I don't know. It's just a, it was a different take on things. Well, all right, fellas. Um, I'm going to go ahead and go with the commonality I've heard here because nobody had anything bad to say. Um, the review for a, the low plans, I think, is success. I think they hit what they said it was here to do. And a single, there's all these points we could have been contrarian to, and the fact is, it does exactly what they set out to do. You know, even with the little info that we had there and a little bit of my issue with the derangement thing, more or less, there is interest here and there's ways to use it. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that, I'm invite you all to make your choice when you hear this and uh, apologize for the length. It's a lot of content to go through, over 200 plus pages. Um, that they go into it almost, uh, um, and it's it's a lot. Um, but even that amount, you get us to get into it, and we didn't want to shortchange it. So uh, that's why we are where we're at. 
Um, once again, I'm going to thank you, Mike, uh, DJ, Brennan, and Nick for joining me uh, on this lengthy journey. And uh, Apologize folks, for the length. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to have to... Son of... Uh, 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 clip edit. oh my god <laughs> alright Nick's an idiot I'm just going to say that right now we'll look to get him muted in a future edition uh, please join us in ST Circle uh, where we probably will make fun of him for that mouth of his and uh, we'll go through that according right and uh, I want to thank you all I appreciate it and uh, this has been an edition of 25 Years VTM thanks folks Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know at Twitter at 25 years of VTM, email at info at 25 years VTM.com, Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash 25 years VTM, at our website at www.25yearsvtm.com. And if you'd like to support us, thank you in advance, and we can be found at patreon.com forward slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thanks for listening.